Hey, I'm really glad that you're here today. Uh, I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 5, and if you have a Bible app, you can open that up and look for an event on it, and the event uh, for Kerbinsville Alliance should be available. You can click that and follow along if you would like to. You know, we've been talking about resilience, how important it is for us to bounce back when life knocks us down. And I guess that if I were to say, how many of you, life has ever knocked you down? Every hand should go up um, because all of us get knocked down by life. The question is, do you get up? Do you get back up after you've been knocked down? And, and how do you do that? Um, resilience, it's not just important, it's really vital that we bounce back because without it, we never try again and we don't go on. As we kind of come to the end of this series, I was thinking about tools because these are tools for resilience. And I was thinking of the tools I have in my garage. I do this thing that kind of makes my wife crazy. Um, if I'm working on my car or something like that and I don't have the tool I need, I go inside and you know have to kind of get cleaned up a little bit and run into town to get it. And I'll say to my wife, I gotta run in and get a, uh, this particular wrench or this tool. And she'll say, you know, you have to understand, I was born in Scotland, so, or I wasn't born, my family's from Scotland. So I'm a little bit thrifty and my wife is a Dutch girl, so she's a little bit thrifty. So between the two of us, we're very careful with our finances. And I'll say to her, I need to go into to town to get this tool. And she'll say to me, well, doesn't maybe Jim have that or Dave or Brian? And I'll say, they have it. And well, well, can't you borrow it from them? No, I need this tool. You know, even if it's a socket, I need this tool because you want to have tools. And I have lots of tools. The question is, if, if you have a lot of tools and you use them, that's great. But if you have a lot of tools and you don't use them, what's that? That's, that's just kind of crazy, right? In this series, we have talked about a lot of tools, and we've said about how important they are. And in fact, I feel like each of these tools is so important. I went back over the website and made sure that all of the sermons were online. If you want to listen to them, one was missing, so I took the time on Friday to re-rip that and put that up onto the website. So you can go in and you can look these over and you can say, ah, the tools for resilience, these are the ones I need to hear. Maybe you even need to hear them again because they're very important. And as I was thinking about how can we wrap this up, how can we think about this, uh, this message and kind of conclusion here together, how can we actually use them, I happen to think of a moment in Jesus' ministry when he was dealing with a person who life had knocked down and Jesus helped him get back up. And that would be the person in John 5 who is at the pool of Bethesda. He's a man who has been there or at least been incapacitated, the scripture says, for 38 years. And I just want to read 14 verses to kind of go through his story. So follow along in John chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It says, Sometime later, Jesus went to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades, here a great number of people used to lie, the blind and the lame and the paralyzed. Now, your Bible might go right on to say one of those who was laying there, but what it's done, it's taken out a little bit of verse three in the end of verse four and stuck it in as a footnote. Do you see that in your Bible that it's not in there? It's kind of at the bottom. Maybe it's still in there. Here's what happened. It's generally considered that some well-intentioned scribe who wanted you to know why all those people were laying there at this particular pool at Bethesda, that he put the explanation in there. In fact, there's no copy of the book, Gospel of John before AD 400 that actually has verses, the end of verse three and verse four in there. So it's probably an addition, but I like it. It's a good addition because it helps me understand what's going on. And so I want to draw your attention to it so I can read it to you. The last part of verse three says, and these people waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down 
and stir the waters. The first one in the pool, after each such disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease they had. Okay, I can see how a scribe would put that in there because he wants you to know why are these people hanging out here? Here's why. Okay, so let's get back to verse five. Verse five, it says, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Oh, now that we read verse 7, you understand why verse 4 was maybe added. Verse 8, Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked, and the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it's a Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick, up your, pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, I want to take a minute and kind of look at this passage before we really delve into it. And just want to look at some of the strange things in this passage. And the first one we already talked about, the, the pool itself. It's kind of an odd thing that that pool that's there, what, what is that thing doing there? Why, why are people behaving the way they are? From time to time, an angel of the Lord comes along and stirs the waters, and the first one into the pool after each such disturbance is cured. I, I think to myself, could that really happen? Is that, is that, was that real? And I think, well, you know, God heals in various ways. After all, one time Jesus picked up some dirt, spit in it, and rubbed it in a blind, man, blind man's eyes and healed him of blindness. So... <laughs> Who am I to critique the pool at Bethesda? Except for one thing. It's a little troubling. It's troubling for me to think that God would set up a system where the fastest handicapped person to make it to the water would get healed. That's just cruel, right? That's just kind of, it's bizarre. Now, I don't deny that the people believed this was the case, but I don't really think that God was healing like that because it does not fit with the character of God. It's just a strange part of the story that's in there. Another strange part of the story is what Jesus says to the man he healed in verse 14 at the very end of it. He says to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Someone might ask, is Jesus saying this because there's sin in this man's life? Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Maybe. We don't know that his condition was due to any sin in his life. All we know is that Jesus said stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Others had suggested that maybe what's going on here is that this man um, needed to give attention to his spiritual state now that he was physically healed. I think that might be the case because sometimes when everything's going our way, we're not really paying attention to our heart and how it's connecting with God. So yeah, maybe that could be the case. We don't really know. But I think the weirdest thing in this passage is neither of those. To me, the weird thing in this passage is the last six words at the end of verse 5. Jesus says to the invalid, do you want to get well? What kind of question is that? I want to be honest. If somebody asked me that question after I had been an invalid for 38 years and sitting at the edge of this pool, I probably would have answered with sarcasm because I love to answer with sarcasm. (laughs) Do I want to get well? What kind of question is that? No, I enjoy being an invalid. I love begging for a living. And I just love it when the water stirs and I can't even move from where I am. What kind of question is that? Why would Jesus ask that question? Well, maybe he knows something about this situation that we don't. Maybe 
He's intentionally asking this question to deliver a point to reveal a problem in that man. In fact, when you read the scholars, you see that's what most of them believe. The thinking is that Jesus is addressing perhaps a character flaw in this man. Perhaps this man didn't want to get well. Do you want to get well? (laughs) I'm not sure I really do. I kind of like being unhealthy because of the way I get treated, and I I don't know that I want to work for a living. I don't mind begging for a living. I'm doing okay. I've been doing okay for 38 years. And having this malady, I get some sympathy that I've become accustomed to and kind of enjoy. I, I don't want to get better. Now, this infirmity had knocked this man down and kept him down for 38 years. So Jesus' words to him, do you want to get well? Were Jesus' words saying, do you want to get back up since you've been knocked down? Here's what I want you to hear today. In the past couple months, we have talked about some tools that God has given you so that you can get back up. My question to you is, do you want to get back up? Knowing about these tools and just knowing they exist, taking copious notes and writing everything down and having all these tools laid out, that will not make you resilient. Just knowing it in your head. Spending week after week talking about these tools, that will not make you resilient. The only way these tools will make you resilient is if you use them, if you choose to use them. So today I want to offer to you some reasons to use the tools that God has given you. And the first one is so that you can have meaningful relationships. That was the first tool, meaningful relationships. Years ago when social media was young, and I mean I'm talking Zanga and MySpace, you know, and then Facebook came out and Twitter and everything else. I, I remember I read a lot of articles written by psychologists and sociologists, and they all said the same kind of thing. They said, this social media thing is going to give people a sense of friendship that isn't real. Wow, several of you who are on social media are nodding. Yeah, I have like 700 friends on social media, right? They predicted that this false sense of closeness and connection that social media gives us will actually, within our hearts, create a longing for meaningful relationships that we might not feel because we think we're getting good stuff from social media, and the end result will be loneliness. It's happened. I was just with someone, a young woman, she's 20-something years of age this past week. She said these words, I think that which characterizes my generation is loneliness. I feel like we're lonely because we don't get together personally. We connect on our smartphones, we connect in texting, WhatsApp, you know, all all the different things. We go to ball games and watch our kids play together and sit beside each other in the benches, but we don't really connect in meaningful relationships. That's why God's given you this tool, because you need meaningful relationships. That's why he's given you a church family. So you can go together on a picnic. You can take in a ball game together. You can sit with one another in church. You can go on a hike together. You can just go out to dinner together. You can enjoy a small group together. That's a tool of spiritual companionship that God has given you to help you be resilient. Use it. Here's another reason we should use these tools so that you have a sense of spiritual guidance. And I'm not talking about spirit guides. Anyone who has read the Bible knows that that's both foolish and dangerous. I'm talking about a flesh and blood spiritual mentor. And I will make it plural. I am talking about flesh and blood spiritual mentors. 
that every man needs other men that can help him navigate the deep currents in life. And every woman needs other women, godly women, that can hear her and counsel her on decisions she's making. If you use those tools, then you'll have godly people to help you make godly choices, and you'll be resilient. Another reason to use the tools is so that you can take godly control of your life. So you can take responsibility for the trajectory of your life. Years ago, I mean like 30 years ago, someone came onto our property and opened the doors of our car in the middle of the night, slipped inside, and took stuff out of our cars and left. I got up in the morning and the car door was open. I thought, huh, I must have left that open. I went to the other car and it was open. I said, "Ah, something's going on here. And then I took inventory and saw, hey, they took all my cassettes. They took some stuff out of my car. It bothered me. It bothered me a lot. It wasn't because of the money. It was, you know, probably $25, maybe less than that. Here's what bothered me. Someone had violated my personal space in a way that I did not give them permission to violate it. That bothered me. They took control of something that was mine to control without checking with me first and even against what would have been my will. And that bothered me. They victimized me, in a sense. And when I think of that, I I can't imagine how it feels to be a victim of a much more personal kind of violation. It would be unthinkable. So what happens when someone takes control of something in your life that they should not take control of, something that only you should control? How do you respond? How do you respond? You have some choices. And a couple of those choices can lead to what I'm going to call self-imprisonment. Some people, whenever they're victimized by someone or something, they just let it go on. They're victimized by drugs, or by that man, or by that woman, or by that sickness, or by that addiction, or by their finances, or by their employment situation, and they begin to feel at home being the victim. And in a kind of crazy way, they They let it go on. And those people live in what I'm calling the victim's prison. It's a self-made prison. I feel like the guy in John 5 might have played the victim. I'm not sure of this, but when I look at his words in verse 7, I feel like I hear a little bit of a whine. Maybe not, but listen to it. I have no one to help me in the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. If he is indeed whining, then he's playing the victim. And he's in the victim's prison. Whether we're talking about being bullied, or we're talking about being manipulated by someone, or we're talking about surrendering to an addiction, or we're talking about kind of pretending to be spiritual by letting someone else run your life, or being violated in some more personal way, all of those ungodly influences, when you allow them to go on, place you in a victim's prison, and there you stay. But you remember this third tool, that God has given you the ability to choose, the ability to make hard decisions. Love is the rugged choice to do the right thing. And God has given you the means to get out of that victim's prison. You have to choose to use the tool. By the way, you don't have to live in the other prison either. The other prison is a prison of vindictiveness. 
It's a prison of revenge. Occasionally, when someone has been injured by someone else, maybe they were bullied or whatever, and they feel like a victim, they'll, they'll raise their fist and they will say, I will not be a victim. Good, but now what are you going to do with that fist? You don't escape victimization by plotting revenge. You hear that sentence? You don't escape victimization by plotting revenge. Justice has to be served, but it is not your place to get even. You are not the angel of wrath. And if you assume that role, you will find yourself in this prison of vindictiveness, and you don't have to go there. God will go there for you. He will settle the score. I've read the New Testament so many times I've lost count of it. This past week, I was reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I saw a verse that never hit me before. Listen to what it says and how it applies to this kind of situation. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. I like that. I like that better than Romans 12 where it says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, it is mine to repay. I like that better than that verse because it says, He will pay them back, those who trouble you. So I don't have to be vindictive. An ungodly vindictiveness will bring me nothing but harm and place me in that prison. You can stay out of those prisons if you will take godly control of your life. And here's what that looks like. Godly control of your life means leaving the past with God and letting him take care of those who troubled you. It is finding healing by drawing near to him. And we're going to talk about that drawing near to God in great detail later in the message. Getting control of your life, godly control, means processing the pain that you have experienced with trusted Christian brothers or sisters. And it is taking responsibility for the trajectory of your life. I can't change what happened in the past, but I can take control of where I'm going. I don't have to be a victim, and I don't have to be vindictive. I can take control and live well to the glory of God. Now, you may say, Pastor Steve, I don't know where you're getting all this from chapter 5. It's there. Jesus could have said any number of things to this man as he wraps up his time with him. But he didn't say any number of things. At the very end of his discussion with him, all he did was counsel him to take control of his own life and destiny. It's right there in verse 14. See, you're well again. Forget the past. See, you are well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Take responsibility for your life and live well. And when you do that, God releases you from the victim's prison. He frees you from the prison of vindictiveness and he empowers you to make wise choices. These tools are incredibly valuable for you. You can use them so that you can experience healing from the past. Most thinking people will say to you that in order to be free of the past, You need to take some time to process it. And we talked about how God has given you the tools, the ability to process your pain. And when you process that pain with God, then you can move away from it, through it and beyond it. I want to talk about counseling and therapy. And first, I want to say, I believe in counseling. I've gone for counseling. I've gone away to retreat and had several days of counseling in my adult life. And I have gone on sabbatical. I went to focus on the family, sat down with a pastoral counselor there and got counseling there as well. So I believe in counseling, but I really believe counseling needs to be grounded in Christ. And the older I get, the more I believe that. You know, the old analogy regarding therapy, it 
It says that when you go to some counselors, it's kind of like you take all your junk and put it on a backpack, you know, and you go trudging into the office, take off your backpack, you set it down, and you sit down, and the counselor sits across from you, and the two of you take everything meticulously out of that backpack, and you order it all on the floor there, and you talk about it, and then you put it all back in, put the backpack on, and go back out the room with the same burden you came in with. But when you go to Jesus, it's different than that. When you go to Jesus, you go to the cross. When you go to him, you remove that backpack, and maybe with him, maybe with a trusted friend, you look through those issues, and you look through all those things, you take them out, you meticulously lay them out on the floor there, and you talk about them, and you you recognize them, you see the pain they, they cause, you see how Jesus is there to help you with it, and then you neatly pack them all right back up into that backpack and hand it to Jesus, and he nails it to the cross. That's a whole different thing. That's a whole different thing. That healing is available to you only when you implement these tools of processing the past to get healing for it. You want to use these tools of resilience so that you can have an eternal perspective. You remember where this sermon series came from? It came from a book by a man named J.R. Briggs who is writing about pastors specifically, but it could be any Christian who feels like they have failed in their ministry. He, he did an inventory, a sort of survey of these pastors, and, and he said this, I'm going to read you these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, maybe eight, eight sentences. Listen as I read them and listen for the common thread. They made a purposeful effort to pursue God in the valley, anticipating God would meet them there. When the pain of rejection and loss seemed too great to bear, and when they felt they had nothing left, they drew close to God. In the deep and extended darkness of anger, despair, bitterness, or bargaining, they found no road to recovery. The only thing left was to draw close to God. When sleep came only after exhaustion, when financial concerns seized them before refreshment, they drew close to God. Do you hear the theme? Draw close to God. Draw close to God. Draw close to God. In fact, the last sentence says it well. Deep down, they were aware it was the most significant factor in their chance of a healthy recovery. No matter what you hope in, no matter what you hope in, until you place your hope exclusively in God, you will struggle with resilience. It's almost like all of us have to come to the place where Peter was in John chapter six, where a lot of people, a lot of Jesus followers were like, I don't think I'm gonna follow him anymore. And the question comes up, are we gonna follow him? The disciples gonna follow him? And, and Peter says it well. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And when you recognize that Jesus has the words of eternal life and he's the only one that has them, then you turn to him. You have an eternal perspective and you find resilience. Why wouldn't you want to use these tools? Use these tools so you find a sense of belonging with the people of God, and you find that in corporate worship. You find that sense of belonging when you're with a group of people singing, and it lifts your spirits. You find that sense of community when you hear Josh praying for Chuck and Judy, and you hear Josh praying for for Louise McGarvey, who's on hospice, and you hear him praying for his own little daughter who's making a cool noise in the back while dad's praying. You have that sense of, I belong to something bigger, and it silences the voice that says, you're alone. It takes that voice away because you know you're not alone. You're with these people and it gives you an assurance, first a reassurance that this is a family, a kingdom that you belong in and an assurance that it's the right family. It's a good family, the family of God to belong to. It makes you resilient. It makes you resilient. And you use these tools so that you can change from who you are to who you need to be. I do a lot of funerals. I think you've told you that many times, and I think you know that. Um, and uh, I can remember 
the first funeral I preached. I actually was in that funeral home for the first time in 32 years. I was there a couple weeks ago. And I'm standing there in that funeral. Another person had passed away, and I'm just visiting because um, it was a mother of a friend of mine. Uh, and uh, standing in that funeral home, I'm looking around. I thought, oh, buddy, this brings back a lot of embarrassment. Because I'd been in ministry for about two weeks, and this was my first funeral. You know how long it was? 12 minutes. Now, you might think to yourself, I think anybody would be happy with a 12-minute service. But I'm just going to tell you, what they were was gracious. <laughs> they were just very gracious. And the only thing that really saved it is when I was done and I looked at the clock, um, the elder had a testimony that he was scheduled to share. And so that head elder from that church came over and said, thank you, Pastor. And then he took about another 12 minutes to share his testimony. It was like a 25-minute funeral. That's a good, good time. God's grace kind of bailed me out there. I, I think back to that. And every time, I mean, when I walked in that funeral home and I was, I was embarrassed, you know, like a little boy. Like, oh my goodness, I was such a jerk here. So embarrassing. And here's what's worse. Here's what's worse. The family whose mother had died, it was actually the, the wife's mother whose funeral I did, you know. But they greeted me and they, they were happy that I was there. I don't have to be embarrassed by that because God takes care of all those failures of the past. That's an non-issue in my life, but I felt that wave of embarrassment. But here's what I can tell you now. Because I knew I blew it, I wanted to learn to do funerals really, really well. And I've come to the point where I can do a funeral that honors the deceased and glorifies God. And I love doing them. It's one of my favorite things about ministry. When you have a teachable spirit that says, I want to be better, I want to change, wow, that's a great tool. And God's made it available to all of us. We use these tools so that we have a chance... (laughs) to be free from dread and a chance to hope. I I think I said this by accident last week. It wasn't in my notes. I was talking about optimists and pessimists, and I said this. I said, the optimist sees the glass as half full. The pessimist sees it as half empty. But the hopeful one, he sees it as filling up and filling up rapidly. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Hope changes everything about your future, and it's a tool that God has given you for resilience. The real question comes, how in the world do we implement these tools? What do I need to do, Pastor Steve, to make these tools mine and to begin to use them in my life? And first, I have to tell you that use of these tools comes only through the cross of Christ. These tools do not belong to just everybody. That may sound like it's offensive to say, these tools are only for Christians, but these tools are only for Christians. They belong to anyone who has turned to Christ, anyone who has knelt their knees, bent their knees, and knelt before the cross of Christ and has turned their hearts to Jesus. They belong to you. The death of Christ, it justifies you. The death of Christ, it saves you. The death of Christ makes you alive. The death of Christ cleanses you. The death of Christ sanctifies you. And the death of Christ makes these tools your own, makes them available to you. If you want them to work in your life, the cross is your starting place. So see your need for forgiveness, turn from your sin, trust that Jesus paid for your sin, and ask God to forgive you because of Jesus' death. And the tools become available. Second, these tools really become active by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. The picture on the screen is of a 1947 John Deere A tractor. That's the kind of tractor I grew up on. I don't know if you ever drove one of those tractors. It had a lot of quirks. I loved it. I loved that old thing. 
I can remember my dad, I don't know, OSHA for farmers would arrest my dad over and over again if they were around back then. Because I can remember my dad would throw me onto that tractor. I'm going to put that picture back up. It's just such a pretty vehicle. Yeah. My dad would throw me onto that tractor between his legs. I was so small, he had to lift me up onto the seat. That's how little I was. And he would put my hands on the wheels of that. I'd have to lean forward and I'd hold the wheels. And I got to drive that tractor, plowing, harrowing, mowing. It didn't matter, hay baling. The hay baler was always doing this. Always had a goose egg from hitting that steering wheel right in the middle where that bolt was, you know, after the hay baler, you know. And, and I loved that as a kid. It was fun. Something you have to know about those old John Deere A's, they didn't have power steering. And so when you hit a, a rut in, in the field or you hit a bump, that wheel would jar. And it could hurt your hand. As an adult, it could hurt your hand. I have my hands on there, little Steve, you know, with his hands on there, holding on to that. And I did what every little kid did. You know what I did? Let me, Dad, get your hands off of it and let me drive. Dad did not do that. He held his hands right there because he knew I was too little. He knew that he mustn't let go. I needed him to hold on to that wheel. That's the way the Spirit of God is. He knows what you can do, and He knows what you can't do. He knows that someday you may be able to use these tools in your sleep. But some of these tools might be hard for you to implement. And so you speak to the Spirit of God. You say, Spirit of God, I am having a lot of trouble choosing wisely to change the trajectory of my life. I need you to supernaturally make that happen. Please do that. And the Spirit of God does that. You say, Spirit of God, I really need help. I need help wanting to change because it's a hard change. And the Spirit of God helps you do that. You ask Him, and He helps you implement these tools. Third, these tools come with the discipline of grace. Discipline, because it's something you have to do. Grace, because God enables you to do it. You have to make yourself use some of these tools. Corporate worship? (laughs) Sunday mornings? I would like to be sleeping on Sunday mornings. How about that instead? Yeah, okay. But if you do that, you're not using the tool. And so you have to discipline yourself to use the tool. Teachability. That requires some humility. My wife said, it's kind of funny to hear you preaching on teachability. (laughs) Because she didn't think I listened to her. Teachability requires that you humble yourself, and that's a discipline to humble yourself and say, I need to know how to do this. Show me, God. Taking responsibility for the trajectory of your life, unless you discipline yourself to do that, you will live in one of those two prisons, either the victim's prison or the prison of vindictiveness. And so you must act with the discipline of grace. And this discipline is a discipline of grace. It is not a heavy load. It is a matter of surrendering yourself to God and finding in Him the ease whereby you can do these things. I am sure there are people who are here who say, you think corporate worship is hard, Pastor Steve? I love coming here on Sunday mornings because they have disciplined themselves to do it and they have found Jesus' words to be true when He says, come to me. All you who are weak and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He gives you what you need. He gives you what you need to be able to implement these souls through the discipline of grace. The reality is that the key to implementing these souls is just flat obedience. That's what it comes down to. 
Will you choose to pick up the tool or not? It's the only way you will be resilient. It's the only way you will grow. And it is your choice. A guy named John Bevere said it well. I brought my wife in to look at my PowerPoint. I wanted her to see how cool that graphic is. Is that not the coolest graphic you ever saw? All right. And the, the trick is that we don't pay for graphics. I make sure that they're royalty-free, and that's hard to get that quality graphic royalty-free. I don't just search Google Images. That might be illegal. So, yeah. So I say to Laurel, look how cool that graphic is. And she says, oh, I love the quote that's on it. It's like, that's a graphic. It's not the quote. It's a graphic. But the quote's great. Listen to it. Physical growth is a function of time. No two-year-old has ever been six feet tall. And intellectual growth is a function of learning. Spiritual growth is neither a function of time or learning, but it is a function of obedience. If you want these tools to be happening in your life, you choose to obey and to use them. That issue of obedience is huge because all of us know people that have been in church for decades and they've studied the Bible like crazy and they can quote it better than your preacher and they have the spiritual depth of a little kid's swimming pool. What, what is it? Obedience. Obedience. If you want resilience, if you want spiritual depth, then choose to be obedient and use these tools. And don't just take these eight tools and put them on a shelf in your garage. I think I said before in one of the services, get yourself a tool belt and keep them right there and use them all the time. They'll be beneficial to you. I want to pray that you can do that. So if you're comfortable doing, would you please stand as I pray for you? If you're comfortable doing so. Let's bow our hearts. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the things that you give us. We are thankful that through your work on the cross, you have purchased our redemption. You have purchased our justification. You've acted as our propitiation. You've turned away God's wrath from us. You have saved us so we can be so we can be different than we are and so we can have eternal life and fellowship with you. Thank you for that. We're thankful as well, Father, that you've given us your Holy Spirit, that you've sent the Spirit of God to dwell in our hearts and that through him we have guidance and enabling to live in ways that we couldn't have lived before. Thank you for that. We thank you for the tools that you've given us through the death of Christ and the agency of the Holy Spirit. What's left in the equation is for us to pick them up and use them. So help us to do that. May we choose obedience. You've given us 10,000 reasons to through Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen.